0: Uh, so, as i said, welcome to all of those uh, who are visiting with us today. It's just such a, such a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, could I ask uh, Neil to come in and read today's text for us? Uh, if you have a Bible with me, would you, you turn in your Bible to John chapter 1? We're reading from verse 9 to 18.
1: Mm. Thanks, thanks, Alan. You. Uh, good morning, beautiful people. <laughs> um, I just want to say to Alex, I've known Alex a long, long time, since Hillcrest Christian Academy days. And um, my son is the same age as Alex. And I see what God has done in your life and what God has done in my son's life. It's been an absolute revelation. And God bless you, my friend. God bless you. you. All right. Reading from um, the first Gospel of John the disciple that loved Jesus, Um, as all the disciples loved Jesus. Verse 9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen.
0: Amen. This is our reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he impress it for all time upon our hearts. Now let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it's, it's Christmas time, and so we, we ask for your help to be amazed at your grace towards us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us as, as your children, that you sent your Son, whom you loved, to die for us because you loved us too. Lord, we pray that as we consider the miracle of the incarnation, that you would be magnified and that praises would ring on our lips toward you. We ask that you send your spirit to guard me from error, to teach each one of us according to your word, and to fill us with wonder as we consider the mystery of the birth of our great Savior. We ask these things boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: Uh, Christmas is my favorite time of year. Those of you who know me know that I've been thinking about Christmas 2017 since the 26th of December of 2016. Um, And I mean, it's easy to be filled with wonder, especially when I go overseas and you've got the snow and the lights and uh, the smell of gammon and uh, you've got the Christmas trees up in all the shops and the hustle and bustle on the city roads and people walking along in the cold and drinking coffee and uh, there's something mystical, and wondrous about, about Christmas. It's so easy to, to be drawn into that. I have to be careful, though, because I'm far too quickly pulled into the, uh, the mystery of the lights instead of the mystery of the true light, uh, who is Jesus Christ. And so uh, we, we are quick to be distracted uh, from, from the true light, but I pray that as we, as we look today at the incarnation, that the word became flesh, that we would be filled with wonder anew at the glory of this gracious gift from God. Like many of the great stories, there are surprising twists to it. Uh, A virgin gave birth to a child that was promised by an angel. A king was afraid of him and had all the young men killed, the little babies killed, to try and uh, conquer this king before he ever became one. And when he's grown up, he performs miracles. He says outrageous things. And then he dies for the sins of the world. He said that he had come to save men from his sins. And that very thing he did do. This is all truly incredible. But like the Israelites, we are quick to forget the mighty deeds of God in history. Uh, Imagine with me, if you will, you take a walk on a daily basis around the block in your house, uh, outside your house, in your neighborhood. And the one day you're walking along and you have your dog with you. Out for a walk, and you, you turn the corner, and out of nowhere, a massive, magnificent, bright rose bed garden has been planted, and you are arrested. You stop in your tracks, and you go, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And you stand there, your attention captivated, and then you hurry home because you, you want to tell your spouse, and you want to tell your family, listen, you've got to go and see this rose garden around the corner, and then you walk past it the next day. And the next day, and then 365 days later, you're walking past on your cell phone, and you barely even notice it. Off you go. And I think we all walk past the rose garden of the incarnation, and we miss the blossoms of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So my prayer today is that we can regain that wonder as we consider this marvelous mystery. See, when we lose our wonder, we lose our worship. And why would I say a thing like that? I would say a thing like that because what what the Bible teaches about worship is that it is a matter of the heart. It is not a matter of the external actions. Uh, Israel kept offering up incense and sacrifices and all that kind of thing, but they remained rebellious in their sin. And God said, I hate the smell of your incense. Turn it off. I, I block my ears. To your prayers, they're like squealing trumpets at me. Because God cares about the disposition of the heart. And worship is a matter of the heart being captivated by something. We are captivated by God's love for us. That's the heart of worship. We are captivated by God's grace. And so let us be captivated anew today. So I've titled this message, Oh come, let us adore him. The light of the world has come. I know I often say this, but it's, it would be possible to do a sermon series just on the, on the text that we've read, read uh, today. But uh, I'd like to suggest that there are three main points in here that we can take. And, and if we can understand these three main points, we've gone a long way to understanding this mystery of the incarnation. The first is that Christmas teaches us that salvation is by grace. The second is that Christmas teaches us that we can have a true and personal relationship with God. And thirdly, Christmas teaches us that God loves the world. So, Christmas means that salvation is by grace. If we have a look at verse 9, we see here it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And similarly, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What this is saying is that the light is coming into the world, the word became flesh. The light was not in the world, and the word was not flesh. Okay, This was an act of grace, an event of grace that had to take place. It is the case that almost all other religions basically, to some extent, teach that we have within us what is necessary to live a good life or to restore the world it comes from within that's why all the eastern mystical things are finding your inner peace and finding your inner joy and all those kinds of things inner joy and inner peace only comes from a person who comes inside of you it doesn't spring out of you it doesn't spring out of the earth joy peace, love, life had to enter the world. And so Christmas is an act of grace. But why was it necessary for for Christ to come? Well, take a look at Genesis 3. God had created man in his image, but man rebelled against God. He had said to them, if you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you will surely die. And yet they did. And so death, through one man, as it talks about in Hebrews, entered humanity. And this had consequences that extended to the universe itself. The world, the planet, the solar system, the galaxies, the universe, quaking, groaning under the weight of sin and brokenness. This beautiful world of God's creation remained in rebellion and sin this expressed itself everywhere from the darkness of the human heart right through to the fact that sickness and disease now existed. And I think one of the worst effects was that of suppression. If we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Everybody knows that God exists, but they suppress this knowledge. It even says this in in, in verse 10 of our text. If we go there, we can see it says, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know. His own people did not receive him. See, people love their sin. And therefore, God's wrath abides on all unrighteousness. So the incarnation teaches us that we need radical, personal salvation. We need a true savior. We do not need a guru or a guide. We need God. There will be pulpits, I would, stay, I would literally stake my life on it. There will be pulpits all throughout the world, today and next Sunday and on Christmas Day, talking about how Jesus will give you your best life now, how Jesus will do this for you and do that for you. But the essence of it is that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. That's the message. That's the gift of Christmas. We need somebody who can do what we couldn't do, which is to uphold, to obey the law. And somebody to make satisfaction for God's wrath against our sin. And God would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sin. Perfectly just. That's why we say salvation is an act of grace. It's not something that God owed. But because of his nature, he looked upon a sinful world, a world that hates him. And he looked upon that world with eyes of mercy. He did not elect to just destroy his creation and start again. He would do in grace what we ourselves could never do. He would make himself the savior of the world. He would would become flesh and enter humanity. He He would live under his own law to produce righteousness for his people. And instead of destroying the world he would come and he would give mercy to murderers he would give grace to gamblers life to liars help to haters and so just like god caused noah to build an ark to escape the flood of god's judgment so the ark of the world was born in a manger that we may escape the flood of God's wrath. This is our God. You may have heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. The gospel message is precisely the opposite of that. God helps those who cannot help themselves. We were helpless, alone, cut off, aliens, strangers, without hope and without God in this world. And yet he sent his son. See, there's no pulling yourself up by the bootstraps to get out of sin. There's no getting all riled up and encouraged up and like, yeah, I'm going to live this holy life apart from Jesus Christ. There is no cleaning up your mess and living a good life. Those self-help books. Woo! There is only one good life. The life of Jesus Christ who produces the fruit of true righteousness in believers. Think of Psalm 121 verse 2. I lift, one to two, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the hills of heaven in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you have no help. Your help is a farce if that is not from whence your help comes and you and this is, came by grace you did not you did not give god permission to show you grace he sovereignly gave grace our god is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases that's what the bible tells us there is no ways that you can stand in the way of his grace Ephesians 2:5 when you were dead in your trespasses and sins you were dead God made you alive together with Christ and lifted you up and seated you in heavenly places with him. Christmas means God is unleashing his transforming and forgiving grace upon the earth. So how do we obtain this grace? Well, Jesus doesn't just give life or have life. Most other religions have a prophet or a founder. um, Somebody who starts a religion. Okay, and they say, hey... This way to God, this way to life, this way to peace, this way to joy. But Jesus comes and he says, no, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the peace, I am the life, I am the joy. He doesn't just teach us about God. He is God. He doesn't say, do this or do that. Go there and uh, you will then become this person who has life. He says, no, no. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's no way to the Father except through him. So if you try and live a life that's not by grace alone, but by measure of the things that you can do to try and be good, if you believe that all that matters is living a good life, one of three things is going to happen. The first is that you will either that you will live a life that is of... Uh, that is plagued by fear and insecurity because you're always going to be wondering, have I done enough to be accepted, to be loved, to be adored? Or two, you'll live a life of arrogance and pride and disdain because you'll think, listen, I've lived a good life and these people haven't. Or thirdly, you will end up living a life of devastation and failure because you've never quite lived up to what you know that you should have. I don't know about you, but I don't find either or any of those three particularly compelling ways to live my life. So, what's the alternative? The alternative is the message of the gospel that we can live by grace through faith. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died. So, this means that if we trust in him, our sin is placed on his shoulders and his righteousness. Is placed on ours. See, he was—he died that we might live. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was cut off that we might be adopted. This is amazing news. In Galatians two twenty, says, "It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I live, I now live in faith in the Son of God." who gave himself up for me and loved me. See, if we believe in Jesus, God looks upon us and sees the very holiness of his son. There's no more guilt and shame and condemnation. That's why Romans 8 says, there is, the eight one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So verses 12 and 13 of our text go on to say, but to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see this? There's something really important here. To all who did receive him, comma, who believed in his name. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ? It means to believe in his name let every heart prepare him room that's what we'll sing later enjoy to the world how, did, how does a heart prepare room believes in trusts in leans on heaps self on flings on jumps on so it's not a matter of physical birth either right it says that not of not of not of blood you don't get born into a rich family or famous family or holy family and become a Christian. You need to be born again by a spiritual birth. It is not a matter of blood. You don't inherit genealogically the faith of, uh, of belief in Christ. You must exercise repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is a personal matter in a corporate context. And so... It's also not a matter of man's will, but of God's grace, right? Not the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's not a thing that's exerted by us. It's God's will. God conquers rebellion, and he grants the gift of faith. So this proves it, right? Christmas means salvation is by grace. Secondly, Christmas means that we can have a true and full relationship with God. True and full relationship with God. Christmas uh, celebrates the fact that God took on human flesh, the the incarnation. This is God making himself known to us. So into into a tortured world of sin was born the light. Into, Into darkness, light. Into mourning, joy. Into brokenness, healing. Into hatred, love. Into blindness, sight. Into confusion, clarity. Into deceitfulness, truth. Into despair, hope. So verse 14 of our text says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if we go to Hebrews 1, this one, it says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. See, this is the substance of our faith, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. He is the God-man. And it's necessary that Jesus be God and man, fully God, fully man, in order to be a true mediator for mankind. He needed to be a man so that our sins could be counted to him. He needed to be a man so that he could be placed under the wrath of God, that he could be the second Adam, that he could be the firstborn of many sons. And he had to be a man so he could live a perfect life on our behalf to become what's called a federal head. Adam was our first federal head. Jesus is the second. He's the one in whom the world is represented. So in Adam, the world fell. And in Christ, righteousness was obtained for all those who believe. And he needed to be God because he had to rise from the dead in his own power. No one else could do that. He had to make satisfaction, bear the weight of the entire world's sin on his shoulders. There is no man apart from that man, Jesus Christ, the true mediator. See, God went to infinite lengths to show himself to us. We sang in the song earlier, veiled in flesh the Godhead see." Hail, incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means Jesus, our God with us. This reminds me of when Moses asked uh, God, show me your glory. I can't do that, you'll die. You'll die. But Jesus is God failed in human flesh. If you look at the sun, you will burn out your retina. But if you have a lens, a veil, if you have a really good one, like a telescope, you can actually see through that, through images, you can see the the sun spots, the heat spots on the surface. You can see explosions. You can see the detail. And so the flesh of Christ is the veil through which it has been possible for us to see the glory of Christ without dying. And that's why it says, we now, uh, when he returns and we are made like him, uh, we will see him in truly unveiled glory. But yet he is the ikon, the exact representation of his nature, the image. The the Greek word ikon is is, is basically what they used for a a stamp uh, that makes the the money. Uh, It makes the same stamp wherever it goes because it's it's a mold. And so Jesus Christ is the exact image of the Father. If you, he said, they said, when will we see the Father? He said, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so in Jesus Christ, we have beheld the glory of God. But up to now, nobody had seen this representation. There'd been some pillars of smoke and some uh, theophanies, appearances of the angel of the Lord, like Daniel in the, in the fire, the uh, the three men in the fire and the Lord appearing. Uh, but uh, we can learn something interesting from God's invisibleness. Colossians 1.15 calls him... Uh, oh, no, sorry. We can learn something about his invisibleness uh, because it teaches us about God's holiness. God dwelled with and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in the garden, right? And then when sin overtook the garden, God withdrew and he no longer did that. He expelled them from the garden. And he no longer walks in the cool of the evening. God's far-offness is part of his holiness. His separation from what is sinful is part of his holiness. And it says that he dwells in inapproachable light. That's what 1 Timothy 6.16 says. He dwells in an inapproachable light who no one has ever seen or can see. But yet, he has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. We now have the visible image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus came so that we may see the Father. The Nicene Creed phrases this beautifully, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. Now, I came across this wonderful little essay by C.S. Lewis. He was responding to a, a Russian uh, dignitary who was, uh, he was basically saying, listen, Russia is justified in being an atheist state because we've been to the moon and God wasn't there. <laughs> That's lovely childlike logic. So C.S. Lewis said, well, of course. He's like... We don't relate with God the same way that the person on the first floor of an apartment building relates to the person on the second floor of the apartment building. We relate to God much the same way, more like how Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. See, Hamlet can't jump up, climb up into the rafters of the playhouse and find Shakespeare there. In order for Hamlet to know anything about Shakespeare, Shakespeare has to, by revelation, put information about himself into that play. But God did something better than just give information about himself. He wrote himself into the play. He entered into his own creation. The creator joined the creatures in his own creation. So indeed, not only does God exist... But he sent his son, a real person, born to a real mother in a real city. The theme of heaven's praises was born into a manger. He came to bring us peace. And peace was very much needed, as we said earlier. Romans 5.20 even says that we were enemies of God. Romans one thirty says that we are haters of God before God's intervention. And so we need a mediator. We need somebody who could offer up what the Bible calls propitiation, a substitute, a a satisfaction, um, something acceptable to God in atonement for our sins. And that man was Jesus Christ. And in order to pay the penalty for sin, only a, a sufficient sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice could be accepted. And we see this shadowed in the Old Testament that the Lamb had to be blameless, spotless, in order to be acceptable, because it foreshadowed the perfect Christ who would die on our behalf. And this is why John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, how was it that he was spotless? It had to do with his birth. See, Jesus could not have been born like the rest of humanity uh, through the seed of a sinful father. He had to be born a new federal head, a new representative for mankind, free from the original sins, free from the stain of the fall of Adam. And so he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was untouched by sin because he was God in the flesh to a virgin. And because of his sinless nature, he, he filled, fulfilled the law of God perfectly on our behalf. And so the high king of heaven emptied himself, humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Philippians 2, 5-8 describes this in breathtaking words. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you believe this? See, there's no other religion in which God suffers. There is no other religion in which God is tempted, in which he hungers, in which he thirsts in which he's rejected, in which he's despised. So no other religion can claim to offer comfort to us in our suffering. He has been tempted in every way. He has suffered infinitely. And so he knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king. What a king that he would take on the form of a servant and suffer in our stead the light of the world has dawned and he's brought us peace with God. And therefore we can have a relationship, fellowship, communion with this God. So Christmas means that we can have a true and full relationship with God. Finally, Christmas means that God loves the world. His love is an action. All right, It's not just a vague feeling. That's why when John 3.16 says, it uh, talks about God's love. It doesn't say God loves the world. Next verse. It says, For so, God so loved the world that he gave. Love is proven by action. Not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is an attitude towards. An action towards. So the claim is that God loved the world and has demonstrated that by sending his son. And you look, he he did not send him to a king's rightful welcome, mind you. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He was rejected, scorned, despised, hated, killed. The one who created all things, The the one who was very much deserving of all worship, was taunted, he was spat on. He was jeered at. He was beaten, he was whipped, and he was crucified. Matthew 20:28 20, tells us, though, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the world matters to God, and therefore what happens in this world matters. You know, people say, people matter. Actions matter. Justice matters. Love matters. Truth matters. But if you don't believe in God, feelings are just chemical responses. People are just bags of stardust. Why does it matter if one bag of stardust stabs another bag of stardust? How does that ma- why does that matter? Why does truth matter? What is truth? Now, my my atheist uh, friends, a lot of them said to me, "Look, um, people, m- religion must be outlawed because believing the wrong thing um, is, is 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 wrong, and people must believe what's, what's true and live by evidence and whatever. Although that itself is a religion of its own form, there's a, a ridiculous hypocrisy there because that person is living like truth matters, but truth doesn't matter." If this is all just an accident, nothing matters, nothing endures, nothing lasts. But no one lives like that. No no one lives like that. No one lives as if people don't matter, lives don't matter, uh, truth doesn't matter, love doesn't matter. We automatically attach meaning to things. We, we live our lives as if love matters. And that's because it does. And Christmas proves this to be true. People matter, love matters, actions matter, truth matters. See, Christians, the amazing message from from Christianity is that love isn't a chemical response. The message from Christianity is that love pre-existed. See, in all other religions, God is some kind of impersonal force or he's a unipersonal being. So he created and then love came. But the message of, of Christianity is that God always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were in the uh, perichoresis. They were always in love and joy with one another. They all loved one another for all eternity. So when the world was created, we can quite literally say that the world was created from love. See, the love came into the world. It already existed. It it pre-existed. We didn't exist and then God loved us and then love was created. And how how do we know this? Look, John John just the start of John one. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus was with God the Father, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is a Trinitarian statement or part thereof. There's always been love. And therefore, because God is love, because He loves this world, love does matter. Truth does matter. Because love is a person. Truth is a person. Joy is a person. Objective realities because they're objectively real people. It matters because God created the earth from love. It's amazing. God created the 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 earth. He entered the earth. And he's redeeming the earth. And one day he will return to the earth. (laughs) See, the Christmas story doesn't just teach us about the past. It teaches us about the future. The surety, because that comes from the fulfillment of God's promise to send his son, and that he then did, is our guarantee. It's our hope. It's our confident assurance of future grace at Christ's return. He was the realization of the Old Testament. You know, he's the second Adam. He's the true and greater Moses. He's the real David. He's the prophet of the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the servant of the Lord. And because of his, he's the branch of Jesse, seed of David. And because of his faithfulness, we can know that we are not battling our sin on our own. You know that the Messiah is fighting your battles on your behalf. And he will not rest until he has brought about the restoration of all things. We're living in the middle of the storyline between when Christ came and when Christ returns. And when he does, he's going to come and he's going to, he's going to judge the earth and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth and there will be no more suffering. We will live eternally in perfect joy and peace and holiness and fellowship with God. Unending, unending fellowship, unbroken communion, unveiled face to face. We will see him face to face, and we will be like him. So as we conclude, let's humble ourselves and receive the good news of the gospel. Around 700 years before Christ was born, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor everlasting father prince of peace mighty god and around 700 years after this prophecy 2017 years before today this man this god man jesus christ was born and i say that it requires humility because our problem is pride and we have pride on both sides the first is the is the pride of of arrogance and delusion that says, I'm a, good, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I live a good life. Haven't shot anyone. Ha- haven't stolen anything large. You know, something that gets TV coverage. I'm a good person. Or, which means, I don't need a savior. Rejection of Christ. Or, you get the, you get the pride of shame. That says, what I have done is so bad that I... Of all people. And beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. That is worse. That is worse. That is worse. It's rejecting Christ. But in the opposite direction. Oh I I need Christ. But he is not big enough for me. So let us consider the humility of the word becoming flesh. Let us consider with wonder, that in Jesus' birth, God punched a hole through the divide between sinless and perfect heaven and sinful and broken earth. And in Jesus' death, that God tore the veil from the top down and put an anchor behind it, that man, that one true mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to experience this? Do you want to live a life that looks like that? Do you want to have your hope secure because there's an anchor behind the veil? Well, I invite you to trust in Jesus Christ and you will find him to be a perfect savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the immeasurable gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would stir us to wonder, to awe, to worship at the miracle of the Incarnation. Lord, may you be the subject of our conversation at Christmas. Help us to preach to our families. May you be the true joy in our hearts and the, and the living praise on our lips. Father, bless each person here with your grace and peace and joy in Christ. We ask these things in the precious and mighty name of our risen savior for the lord jesus christ amen